the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. Uh, This is a delight for me. Yesterday I read an op-ed or large parts of an op-ed written by one Ryan Banger, uh, Senior Counsel and Vice President for Legal Strategy over at the Alliance for Defending Freedom. And I introduced the piece by saying, do you ever read a piece that says exactly what you're thinking and you wish you could say it as well? Ryan Banger wrote that piece in uh, Real Clear uh, Politics yesterday, or it was actually in one of their affiliates, Real Clear religion. Ryan Bangard is joining us today. Sir, thank you for coming on on such short notice. I appreciate it. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Seth. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. As I said um, or just a moment ago, and as I said yesterday, your piece, Racism is Wrong, but Anti-Racism Does Not Belong in Schools. That's something very... I, I, I have thought about a lot of things that don't belong in schools, and no one seems to want to take that issue up. We seem to get caught up in the debate of what 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 to do and what to say once it's in the schools and what should the right approach to the curricula or the instruction or the pedagogy be about it some of this shouldn't even be there uh do you want to go ahead and take a over give us an overview of what your column is saying here sir you bet Seth, and, and you're right i mean it's a difficult issue to tackle because we're living in an upside down world where language is being abused mm-hmm. Everyone agrees that students and every American deserves to be treated equally under the law, regardless of their race, ethnicity, or religion. And we all agree that public schools should not be in the business of attacking or demeaning students based on any of these characteristics, including race. And when the schools use words like anti-racism, the natural tendency is to think, well, yeah, I'm on board with that. But the problem is, Anti-racism is is really a code word. It's not even a word that means what you think it means. It, it's a racist construct through and through. And then that's the problem, and that was the message I was trying to unpack in the column, was explaining why the ideology of anti-racism is really based on critical theory notions uh, that are the very opposite of what just about every American believes and supports. I well said. Uh, we're talking with Ryan Banger from the Alliance uh, Defending Freedom about his piece uh, that uh, was posted in uh, Real Clear Religion just yesterday. Racism is wrong, but anti-racism racism does not belong in schools. Actually, it was posted January twenty-six. Came to my attention yesterday. Ryan, um, you. This is one of my greatest concerns about our country, maybe our culture, but certainly our country. Um, the kid comes home with a flyer or a statement about a new anti-racist curriculum or series of studies or lesson plan that's going to be taken uh, undertaken at the school and unless you know they're part of the population you know that listens to talk radio or maybe tunes into fox from time to time Unless they're of that population, which is not anywhere near the majority of this country, most parents will say without really looking too deeply at it, yeah, what you said, yeah, I'm on board with that, good, yeah, let's go after racism. And they have no concept 
of what their kid is about to then be entrenched in or drenched in, I should say. I worry a lot about that. Kudos to the left for figuring this one out and how to hoodwink people into thinking their kids are getting an anti-racist lesson when what they're getting is a racist lesson. Huh? That's exactly right. And in fact, I detail in the article a lawsuit that my law firm, Alliance Defending Freedom, brought just recently in Virginia, in Albemarle County, which yeah. is where Charlottesville is located, the University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And they implemented, that school district implemented a, a curriculum that they called an anti-racist curriculum. Uh, but the problem is that that curriculum is actually promoting race-based division and resentment. And it's treating kids differently based on their race, and it's compelling them even to affirm and support ideas that run contrary to the kids and their parents' deeply held moral, philosophical, and religious beliefs. And those beliefs are that we shouldn't discriminate based on race. We shouldn't treat people differently based on race. And yet this curriculum is saying the only way to cure racism is to categorize people based on their race into groups of either oppressed or oppressors, and then say that they're going to be afflicted with these characteristics for the rest of their life, and there's nothing they can do about it. And it's very disempowering. It's a disempowering message. Uh, It it completely denies individual agency. Um, And and quite frankly, as I point out in my article, uh, it's contrary to a a biblical and Judeo-Christian ethic. Right. Well said. When you put it, right, when you put all the blame on white privilege— then you're right. Um, un- until and unless a child or science figures out a way to change someone's race, they are being taught to be guilty the rest of their lives, to feel guilty, to feel responsible the rest of their lives. Never mind the entire problem of uh, collective guilt or group or group uh, group prejudice. Right. Never mind that for a moment. Let's just talk about the child for a moment, the eight year old, the nine year old, the 10 year old who is told he and his people are responsible for crimes he didn't commit and his parents and grandparents may not have committed, probably didn't commit, right? There, there's got to be a tremendously damaged—I mean, Brown versus Moore was kind of was kind of a, a lawsuit that depended in, in large part, didn't need to, but ended up depending in large part on psychological studies. If we ever come around to ending this in a Supreme Court case, I'm going to guess for the courageous there are going to be psychological studies about what it means to tell white children— that they are responsible for society's ills because they are white children. I'm going to guess. Well, I think, and, and you point out a very, very correct thing, which is that this ideology of anti-racism, this ideology of being taught to kids, really locates uh, evil in systems and hierarchies. These are all very Marxist terms. And as I point out in the article, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a, a Russian dissident who I think needs to be read much more today than he is. Oh, yes. Uh, he issued the, he said those timeless words when he came to the United States uh, from Russia that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but through every human heart. And this, this anti-racist ideology is completely the opposite. It locates evil, it locates uh, racism in institutions. And it locates it in classes, and it denies human agency. No one denies. No one denies that racism is evil, and no one denies that it still exists today. The question is, what do we do about it? And the answer given by the anti-racist ideology is, we're going to be ter- we're going to tear down 
hierarchies and systems of oppression, in their words, uh, that that really is code for let's do away with the traditional family. Yeah. Let's do away with religion. Let's do away with individual liberties in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, those are not answers that the vast majority of Americans would support. And yet, under the guise of anti-racist ideology, that's what their kids are being taught. And that's what we're trying to point out in this lawsuit, is uh, parents shouldn't stand for it. Uh, we absolutely have to stand against racism. But we also need to stand against false ideologies that are, that are, going, to be, that are going to be just as bad as the problem. We're talking to Ryan Banger from the Alliance Defending Freedom. You said so much there, Ryan, that is so important, and I could go down any number of roads on on what you said. But let me let me let me try one on uh, for size, uh, one on for size with you, which is it, it, something you quoted John McWhorter in your piece, didn't you? I don't have it quite in front of me right now, but I think you quoted yeah, John McWhorter. Yeah, okay, John McWhorter from uh, Columbia University and uh, has a new book out. I was reading it. And he says something kind of interesting. I'm glad he said it. I hadn't heard anyone else say it. You kind of go into this in your comments just now. He said, in some respects, and suffice it to say, I think it's fair, McWhorter's on our side about a lot of this stuff. He said, but in important respects, it's a, it's, 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 it's a good thing that all of us hear the word racism or still think of the appellation of racism as a negative, as a pejorative, as a criticism, as, uh, as, as, as an evil. That's itself still a good thing. And so, you know, when people like you or people like me want to look more deeply into why someone or something is called racist um, and, and, and we get concerned about it being, you know, the responsibility of all one people or all one color – that that that's something we'll deal with. It's still a good thing that the word racist rings a bell with people as a negative. But that day may come to an end if we continue to vitiate the term, if we continue to water it down to just be the actions of one people. Uh, if that if that is making sense. I, Ryan, I have I have a quick commercial break. Do you have time for one more segment or do you got to run? Uh, I do. I would love to uh, pick up on that theme with you when we come right back. Are we worried about taking the toxicity of the word racism and turning it into, you know, nothing worse than applesauce? That's my concern. I'm Seth Leapson. He's Ryan Banger from the Alliance Defending Freedom, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Ryan Banger is our guest. He is uh, from the Alliance Defending Freedom. His peace and real clear religion this week. Racism is wrong, but anti-racism does not belong in schools. We're talking about the redefinition of racism as it is placed in our students, uh, in our children's, and in our school's curricula. Ryan, I was asking if we should be concerned, we who care about racism, which I would hope would be everyone, but particularly those of us that really sincerely do care about it, should we be worried about the ongoing watering down of what racism really is and really means? It's special toxicity by the way we are redefining it such that it will soon become, if we're not careful, just another wolf that the boy cries about that no one will pay attention to anymore because it isn't really racism and it really isn't that bad. You know, Seth, it, it, you, you strike on a really important point, and that is this redefinition of racism uh, 
uh, really does cause tremendous confusion, um, and it's also incredibly pernicious. Uh, racism is racism defined as holding someone in contempt or treating them differently because of their race. Obvious evil, but the problem with with things like what the Albemarle County school system is doing in Virginia, that the curriculum there is, they are including within the concept of racism simply holding wrong, quote-unquote, wrong political beliefs about mm-hmm. such things as the way schools are funded mm-hmm. or the way the Constitution is going to be interpreted on matters that have nothing to do with race. They're, they're packing into the concept of racism uh, things that, that are purely political disputes that have nothing to do with race, and by so doing, uh, they're ultimately twisting and changing the meaning of racism, uh, and, and as you pointed out, diluting it. Um, it needs to be, racism needs to be something that is held in complete opprobrium. Uh, it needs to be rejected. But when, when for political reasons, uh, school districts and others begin packing into the concept of racism, all of these other things, uh, it, it, it takes us down a very dangerous road and one that we, we need to reject because we need to maintain racism as something that is to be utterly rejected. Thank you for that, Ryan. Um, Is the battle becoming more difficult? Uh, Let me put it to you this way. You may not have seen this, and you may be diffident about speaking about other organizations, and that's perfectly fine if you are. But you may have seen the Anti-Defamation League, which was an organization a lot of people used to use their resources for to understand, you know, where racism was in America just today, just today on their website and uh, on their Twitter account, uh, changed their definition of racism. I'll read it to you. It's pretty simple. The marginalization and or oppression of people of color based on a socially constructed racial hierarchy that privileges white people. Again, we've just removed an entire category of what we used to think racism was, group guilt, group response, collective responsibility, and put it back onto one race that several things going on here only 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 certain races can be racist and if you are a member of that race you are indelibly so this is a really really strong turn for an organization that had some bragging rights about bringing racism to the attention of america in the 20s 30s 40s 50s and 60s it's a very curious turn, and they could have taken that definition directly from the textbook and, and curricular materials that are being handed out to kids right now in Albemarle County and other places all throughout the United States. And it's, it's incredibly harmful because that definition locks people into rigid categories of oppressed or oppressor based on nothing more than their race. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very much a, it is a politicization and, and really a Marx, Marxification mm-hmm. of the concept of racism. Um, and it's, as we pointed out, it is just incredibly damaging because it's disempowering to individual students. Yep. And it robs them of agency, of all colors, not yep. just white. Yep, not you can never get out of it or color. you will always be in it, one or the other. Yep. It, it robs kids of agency, and that's a terribly disempowering message that we can send to any kid. Totally, totally agree with you on that. Uh, let me let me ask you this because your title kind of, you know, pushes for someone to ask this question: Racism is wrong, but anti-racism does not belong in schools. The hit on people that think the way you do and think and think the way I do is that we don't want to teach 
the full history. We are afraid of the full history being taught, the full history of America being taught in our schools. Um, I, I, I think this is another interesting projection. I, I have no problem with everything being taught in our schools. I want everything taught in our schools. And quite frankly, growing up, Ryan, I'm, I'm guessing we were maybe within the same age category. All the stuff they say they wish was taught was taught to me when I went to the public schools here in, of all places, Phoenix, Arizona. I think they're the ones. I think they're the ones that are excising and changing curricula and are afraid to teach things. That's what I think. Well, that, that absolutely is a red herring. Uh, no, I, I, I can't think of anyone who is standing against critical race theory today who believes that schools should not teach and fully confront actual acts of racism. And there have been more than enough sure. in our nation's history sure. to fill hundreds of pages, and no one would deny that. And, and that needs to be confronted, it needs to be discussed, it needs to be taught, and ultimately it needs to be condemned. Acts of racism need to be condemned. And no one is denying that. No one is advocating for that. What we are saying, though, is when you fully confront, when you fully uh, appreciate uh, racism, you don't then attempt to excise it and fight it by doubling down on racism. Mm -hmm. You don't fight bigotry by simply encouraging more bigotry. Mm -hmm. That simply, there's an old saying, when you're in a hole, stop digging. Right. And you, this is not the right approach to confronting and dealing with actual racism, which has existed and still does exist in our society. Uh, but simply fighting bigotry with more bigotry is not the answer. Ryan, last thing, and I was just so taken by this title, does not belong in schools. It seems like our kids now are the new political battlefield, or at least their playgrounds are the new political battlefields of adults. There seems to be a lot going on in our schools that doesn't belong there. Is this something the left understood and the right is just catching up to understanding? Our schools are very much at front and center uh, in, in the cultural fight for the soul of America and the soul of America's youth. There's no question. And the teaching of critical race theory is just one element of that battle. And we have seen a number of other battlefronts launched, uh, not, not to mention the teaching of radical critical theory around gender yep. and gender transformation. Yep. Uh, that's just one additional place. Look at look at the rejection of capitalism. Look yep. at the rejection of, of uh, the market economy. And, and look, even uh, equally as troubling, look at the rejection of freedom of speech. Yep. Uh, polling data shows that young people today just don't appreciate how valuable and how fragile our First Amendment rights truly are. Uh, these are all things that should concern us and attacks that are being directed at our, at our most vulnerable uh, students, our youth. And that's why you exist and why your organization exists, Alliance Defending Freedom. I respect you all so very, very much. Ryan Bangert, thank you for taking some time on a Friday evening with us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Seth. Thank you so much. You betcha. God bless. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. Anything on your mind? We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. I uh, was listening to something that didn't even occur to me, and it didn't sound quite right, but 
the response to the criticism, speaking of race, the response to the criticism of Joe Biden narrowing his Supreme Court appointment authority to a racial and gender category, he said it will be a uh, woman of color. Um, The response to that has been to conservatives who object to that. Well, that's what Reagan did. That's what Reagan did. And I knew immediately there were a few concerns here. Jonathan Turley writes, uh, Jonathan Turley, professor of law at George Washington University. Uh, he, he's on this case. He writes, with the retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, President Joe Biden was immediately challenged by Democrats to make good on his pledge that he would consider only black females for his vacancy on the court. When he made that pledge, Turley writes, some of us raised concerns that he was adopting a threshold racial and gender qualification for the court, a body, by the way, which has to adjudge those things all the time and will be doing so with regard to Harvard and the University of North Carolina in the current term. The claims were immediately challenged by liberal commentators and their authority was somewhat surprising. Ronald Reagan. They insisted that Ronald Reagan made the same pledge to only consider a woman for his first vacancy. The claim is false. And indeed, the Reagan example shows why Biden's pledge was both unprecedented and unnecessary. And I'm going to guarantee you, any non-conservative room you walk into that discusses this issue is going to bring up that Reagan did it too. I just guarantee you, they got the talking points. They got the talking points. In his campaign, Joe Biden made two pledges to voters and asked his opponent to do the same, to nominate only a black woman for the next Supreme Court seat and to choose a woman as his vice president. As previously discussed, the Supreme Court has repeatedly rejected such threshold exclusions on the basis of race or gender as raw discrimination. You've heard me talk about Bakke. In 1977, the court ruled in the Bakke case that affirmative action in medical school admissions was unconstitutional. The justices declared that preferring members of any one group for no reason other than race or ethnic origin origin is discrimination for its own sake, while adding that the Constitution forbids this. Biden's controversial use of race and gender criteria will only grow in the coming months as the Supreme Court considers two new cases involving racial preferences and college admissions. Those cases may now be heard before a court with one member who was expressly selected on the basis of not a racial preference, but a racial exclusionary rule. Various commentators insisted that Biden did just what Reagan did. The comparison is the opposite. Reagan did not exclude anyone other than women in being considered while making clear that he wanted to give one of his vacancies to a female candidate. In October of 1980, just a little, you know, a couple weeks before the election, he declared, I am announcing today that one of the first Supreme Court vacancies in my administration will be filled by the most qualified woman I can possibly find. It's time for a woman to sit amongst the highest jurists, close quote. Notably, it was Jimmy Carter who pounced on that pledge as creating a threshold gender criteria. Others noted at the time that Reagan was simply pledging that he would select a woman in one of the first vacancies rather than the first. And indeed, when a vacancy did arise, aides told the media there was no guarantee that he would select a woman. But Reagan never pledged to only consider women and, in fact, considered non-female candidates. One of the leading contenders was 
Judge Lawrence Pierce, an African-American trial court judge. Newsweek and other media sites listed an array of males actively considered, including, yes, you bet, Robert Bork, Dallin Oaks, Malcolm Wilkie, Phil Kurland, and Ed Meese, who was then not yet his attorney general but special counsel to the president. Nevertheless, Reagan clearly wanted a female candidate and reportedly told White House Deputy Chief of Staff to find a woman who was qualified and come back and discuss if that was not possible. That person they found was Sandra Day O'Connor. Reagan did what many universities do in seeking to add diversity in admissions while not excluding other candidates. The Supreme Court has allowed universities to use race or gender as a factor in seeking to create a diverse critical mass on campuses. Commentators have also claimed that Donald Trump made the same pledge. After Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, Trump said, I will be putting forth a nominee next week, and it will be a woman. However, he had already publicly released three lists of possible nominees of different races and genders. His staff had been working on vetting that list when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Let me say something more about this when we come back. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-5080-960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I've taken my balance of nature today. Have you? It is such a great product, their blend of whole fruits and vegetables. We're talking serious stuff, pineapples, lemons, aloe veras, tart cherry, wild blueberries, grapes, grapefruit, uh, oranges, papayas. And it's just it's, – it's, it's, it's the only whole food supplement with no additives, no fillers, extracts, synthetics, pesticides, or added sugar. The only thing – in it is pure fruits and vegetables. And you take them in capsules once a day and you are better than good to go. In fact, I even advise it for when your get up and go has gone up and left because it is a great natural pick-me-up, a pick-me-up based on fruits and vegetables. Go to balanceofnature.com to get your order of fruits and veggies. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE, discount code BALANCE. Let me um, return to Jonathan Turley on the Reagan-Biden comparison with regard to selecting Supreme Court justices, he says what is most striking about the comparison is how unnecessary it was for Joe Biden to categorically rule out non-female and non-black applicants. He could have simply made clear that he wanted to add a black female to the court and would make that a priority without promising that the very first vacancy would be barred to other genders or races. This is this is part of the sticking point. It was popular for many voters to say that whites or males need not apply. But it's also meant that Biden would reject, think of some of our greats, a Louis Brandeis or even a Thurgood Marshall because they are of the wrong gender or race. It also meant that minority groups that would include naturally Native Americans and Asians that have never had a justice from their own community, that they would be barred. At a certain point, when does that begin to stick, offend? Biden's record on racial discrimination as president, it's not a good one. It's the same type of threshold use of race that resulted in federal programs in the Biden administration being struck down as being raw racial discrimination, including prioritizing black farmers for pandemic relief. But there is also an ongoing controversy in the Biden's administration's use of race in distributing scarce COVID 
treatments. It was also entirely unnecessary. The CDC has described obvious conditions are cancer, diabetes, obesity, heart conditions, and other medical ailments. However, the CDC also discussed race as a factor due to long in their words, quote, long-standing systemic health and social inequities, close quote. There is no reason to make race a factor as opposed to the medical conditions. There is no reason for the CDC to engage in the distortion of American history. Indeed, by the way, on those conditions, given that the higher rate of these conditions, along with the lower rate of vaccinations in minority communities, there would still be a higher priority, obviously given to many minority patients. But Biden's decision to impose a racial and gender exclusionary rule will now unnecessarily add a controversy to this nomination. The shortlist of judges includes some who would be natural candidates, one would think. But President Biden has saddled the eventual choice with an asterisk that is unfair to both the nominee and the court. I remember, I remember, and maybe some of you are old enough to remember too, that when Sandra Day O'Connor was nominated, there were questions all over the place on all the talk shows. There weren't that many back then, but on all that there existed. And in the newspaper and editorial columns, is she qualified or is she only qualified because she's a woman? And do you know what that does? That, that, that was perhaps the first national example of what Shelby Steele would later call the stigma of permanent incompetence, that affirmative action programs based on race, race and gender lead to. The stigma of permanent incompetence. When the question has to arise are you there because of what you did or are you there because of the way you were born? The question does naturally arise, and it excludes, by the way, all those people who may have been born into a minority group or minority status or some other non-majority um, characteristic. It excludes them from being uh, recognized as having overcome whatever challenges they may have had excuse me, if and when they do overcome them. It excludes that entire story. You saw a version of this with Kamala Harris, and it's a real societal problem that hasn't come home to roost just yet, but I predict will. And we've talked a little bit about it before. It's delicate, but it's there nonetheless, not because we put it there, but because unwittingly and unthinkingly the left put it there. When you put a Kamala Harris as your running mate and then go out on a publicity campaign that gets you headlines, first African-American woman, hero to young girls, first role model, first example, when she gives speeches saying my nomination shows that young girls of color or young women uh, from racial minorities can do anything they want and can re- and can break through any glass ceiling and succeed – When that becomes the narrative, what happens if and when, if, let's stick with if, what happens if that person, that Kamala Harris, doesn't succeed? What happens if they turn out to be a colossal failure and everyone knows that the choice for her was not based on her merits but because of her color or gender or 
that the heroism about her, the role modeling of her two young women or young minorities was all about the fact that it was women in minority status that got her there and she didn't do well. What happens if she fails? What message is being sent at that point? That's the damage. That's the damage that's been done. I don't think, as I said, those chickens have roosted or come home to roost just yet. But they're walking awfully quickly towards that hen house when you have the example of someone like Kamala Harris, aren't they? You're walking awfully close to that line Shelby Steele was lambasted for uttering, the stigma of permanent incompetence. It's not a stigma we want. It's a stigma we worry about. It's a stigma we worry about. If John Roberts was right, and if before him Thurgood Marshall was right, in his brief for the NAACP in Brown versus Board of Education, that the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race, just appoint the person and don't make a thing of their race. That That is what the left refuses to do because they want some kind of racial antagonism. They want some kind of racial rewards system in this country. But if you have a reward system, what they have to understand is that you also then have an equal punishment system. And that's what Jonathan Turley is pointing out. Under Joe Biden, you don't get your Louis Brandeises. You don't get your Thurgood Marshalls if you're a member of the left. If you're a member of the right, you don't get your Sam Alitos and you don't even get your Clarence Thomases. By the way, if you're offended by what I said about this problem of the chickens and Kamala Harris, just look about what they say the left does about Clarence Thomas and tell me I'm wrong. Uh, uh, welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. I was reminded of a line, David Galerter's, about race preferences and affirmative action. It's a column of his in the Wall Street Journal. By the way, his book, Drawing Life, which is, I've said before, is one of the greatest books of the latter half of the 20th century, can be read, read in an evening. It's just a, a, a fantastic tour of Western civilization, culture, ideas, thought, bringing together all the disciplines from art and literature to sociology and anthropology and everything else. It's just a mind alive and a mind on fire. My buddy Jim here was reading it um, and, uh, and, and was pointing out that it's 25 years old this, week, uh, this year, and I reached out to David. It's such a good book, worth rereading in my case, that I'm going to have him on in the next couple of weeks to talk about it 25 years hence. Many of you know of his son because he's been on more frequently. I used to have David on more. He's just gotten busy and the times haven't worked out. But I have his son Daniel on quite a bit, as many of you know. Gifted, gifted, gifted family. And I say it three times because the word gifted has been overused. But this is a very sincerely gifted family. Speaking of gifted, wanted to uh, do a quick callback to something uh, – Bob, uh, in our audience, uh, you usually don't give out last names uh, unless you tell me to. 
Bob in our audience wrote in, uh, Mr. Leibson, call me Seth. <laughs> Yours was among the fittingest tributes I heard today. He's talking about my monologue with regard to police. One thing I haven't heard mentioned that has stuck in my mind today has to do with the common rationalization many use in these tragedies. And that would be, well, they knew what they were signing up for, and this is one of those risks. While that may be true, it isn't true that these officers signed up to serve a public that didn't have their backs and that they elect prosecutors that no longer do their job. Funding has left their ranks thin. Many of these people they serve openly celebrate their death. So in that respect, they didn't sign up for this. And at least as far as I'm concerned, I'll stop thinking in a small way that they did too. Yeah, that's a really uh, keep up. The, thank you, Bob. You keep up the good work. That That is a great point. No, this is not what they signed up for. They did not sign up for prosecutors to delete crimes. They did not sign up for um, in, in, arrest and incarceration to be a turnstile. They did not sign up for the community not to have their backs. They signed up for none of that. No, it's a very, very good reminder. They signed up for a job where they thought they were protecting the community and the community, thankful, would have their backs. Well, we do. I'm Seth Liebson. We will be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 